Well, uh, what do you say? Let me see. I gotta grab my book here and say a prayer. We can uh, we can get started here. Here is a prayer for uh, from this past Sunday, the sixth Sunday of Easter. I wonder a beautiful prayer. Let's pray. O God, the giver of all that is good, by your holy inspiration, grant that we may think those things that are right and by your merciful guiding, accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. I, I like that prayer because it connects to um, something that I've been talking about when I've been working on catechesis with folks, uh, instruction in the faith, and it's something that pertains to what James talks about in being hearers and doers of the word, um, that, that to be a Christian, to be a believer in God, is a, is a whole person kind of an experience. And uh, it involves your whole body, your mind, soul, your heart, your spirit, and your actions. Oh, a little bit feedback. I'm telling you what, I'm going to mute a couple of you here. <laughs> Just so, see if I can capture, figure out who's, uh, there we go. All right. Um, uh, and so it talks about how uh, it is important that we have our minds right or our hearts right, in addition to uh, the actions that we carry out. So whenever we talk about the commandments, for instance, when I, when I teach about the Ten Commandments, uh, we see the actions that are involved. The Fifth Commandment's easy and obvious. You shall not murder. Don't, you know, don't kill anybody. But that uh, commandment must also be kept even beginning in your heart because murder begins in the heart with anger and hatred. And if, you, if your heart is not right, in fact, it matters not one bit whether or not you actually carry out murder because you've already murdered somebody in your heart if you hate them. And that's why this prayer is such a beautiful prayer because we, we pray that God would not only guide our actions to do what is right, but he would lead us to have minds that are conformed to his will so that we love what he, what he loves and to think those things that he thinks. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful prayer. It's something we should pray for uh, often. Um, I wanted to give you, uh, uh, Neil asked just beforehand about um, the, the synod, the Missouri synod and um, uh, our reaction to the government restrictions on church activities. And I wanted to give you an update. It's kind of breaking news as a matter of fact. Um, so Governor Waltz gave a talk today um, in which he, kind of outlined with a little bit more detail phases of a plan in Minnesota for allowing more and more commerce and church uh, religious activities. But it became very, very evident, as, as has become increasingly evident, that uh, religious functions and churches are pretty low on the list of priorities. And in fact, it remains indefinite uh, when churches will be allowed to meet in, you know, in their normal capacity or even in a limited capacity. Right now, it's it's 10 or fewer people in, in the church, and that's for the foreseeable future. Um, and he offered no, no, really, no criteria for when that might change. Um, almost immediately after that press conference, uh, I got an email from the Minnesota North District, um, which was, I was very, very glad to receive it, very surprised to receive it, but very, very glad. They, they had collaborated with other Lutherans in the state of Minnesota, so the Minnesota South District, as well as the Evangelical Lutheran Synod and the Minnesota District of the Wisconsin Synod. And they collaborated with uh, the Catholic bishops in Minnesota to uh, basically tell the governor that enough is enough and uh, that they have petitioned and tried to collaborate with the state on 
um, coming up with a solid plan to open churches uh, in a safe, healthy way that is no more dangerous than uh, all of the other uh, opportunities that are available right now to the public. And the governor and, and his office and administration have not responded, have not, have not been willing to collaborate. And so um, the letter I got said, um, it was a statement to the, to the government, to the governor and the attorney general saying that uh, our district is essentially uh, taking a position which says that it's permissible for churches, it's licit. It, we, can, we can in good conscience violate the governor's executive order and meet in a way that is in keeping with the fifth commandment, loving our neighbors, protecting their, their health and being safe, but that we are not subject to, um, to the, the regulations that the governor has imposed, which are principally because they're in violation of the Constitution, the, the, in violation of the, um, the freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution for religious practice. So that's a, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, just from a historical sort of theological perspective, it's very interesting and very bold and very courageous for our, uh, our church leaders to do that. That's not something, you know, it's not something that um, any individual church could have done unilaterally in, in good conscience to do that apart from, you know, to, to violate the orders apart from, you know, the, the consensus of the circuit or the rest of the district would have been um, inadvisable. But to have some leadership from the top down saying, um, we're all on the same page about what's right and what's wrong in these, in this instance, um, really is a, a kind of a, a uh, again, I was very surprised that they did it, but also very uh, proud of them for, for taking that position. So um, it remains to be seen what we're going to do. In some sense, the letter that they sent to the governor and the attorney general was kind of a, a shot across the bow because um, they said, uh, we're not going to do anything this Sunday, but next Sunday, the 31st, Pentecost, um, we're going back to church. That's what the, that's what the district president said. Um, so my guess is that, especially since the Catholics are involved, who have a little bit more political clout than we do, um, the, the governor will have something to say about it in the meantime. And um, that's, you know, goes along with some lawsuits that are being filed. And the, and the point here is, you know, is not that um, churches want to be cavalier and reckless. And in fact, um, we want to be very careful and cautious. And, um, but we don't want to be under the thumb of somebody who, does, who doesn't uh, honor God the way that we do. So um, anyway, that's a, it's a very interesting thing. I'm curious if you have any reactions or questions about that. Just a reaction I had to, your, to the letter from the Senate. And uh, I, I'm glad they all went in together, or, you know, with North and Minnesota North, Minnesota South, along with other church bodies, being together at a uniform front, I think that's an important thing. So, yeah. yeah. I'm just curious too, um, other faiths, sorry, I, th I think of like the Somalians or something. It, have there been any restrictions on their uh, practices? I think so. So, um, yeah. every religion is subject to the same okay. restrictions. Yep. Okay. And in fact, um, that was one of the things that happened early on was because of the restrictions on mosques. Um, there were special provisions made for what was it? Was right. it Ramadan? Right. That, that is correct. Yeah, they did yeah. make yep. a, a special arrangements. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And and are they gathering then, or how are they handling it? Not being no, able to. Not. Get yeah. So they're they're at, at least uh, at face value. They're everybody's doing. Gotcha. What they ought to do, or okay. what what the government has has said to do. Yeah. So so regular prayer meetings, regular gatherings have been have been stopped. Okay. Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Bubalt. They're muted. Uh-oh. Let's see, maybe I can do it. Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah, I Googled uh, uh, Walt, and he is a Lutheran. That's what it says here. Which can mean any number of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just says you're Yeah. It doesn't say. I mean, you kind of, in, in Minnesota, you'd have to be, at least on paper, you'd have to be a Christian of some sort to get, well, maybe not anymore, but. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, uh, with, aside from just, you know, the, the, the joy of having the freedom to make these decisions for ourselves um, and to be wise, you know, to be able to exercise our wisdom and prudence in um, worshiping God. Um, I'm also just, you know, kind of floored. It's, really, uh, it's a, it's a remarkable historical <laughs> thing that's happened. You know, I don't, I don't know. I can't imagine um, another situation in which the, um, our church body, would have advised or given, you know, given permission to uh, its constituents that they that they could violate in good conscience violate the government government's orders. I mean, we got close with stuff concerning contraceptives and whatnot um, in recent history, but it was never it, those those were those were court victories, and so it was never a matter of disobeying the government. Um, so it's a really interesting it's an interesting time to be to be witnessing. So. Can hear you, Dorothy. Hang on a second. Go ahead, Dorothy. Well, we do smaller services, like maybe 50 at a time or something. Uh, that remains to be seen. So we got to okay. kind of mull it over a little bit and we um, will, uh, yeah, we'll see what, come up with a good strategy and, and, uh, and go from there. So. Okay. But we got plenty of, we got plenty of options, I think, to, to make something work. Well, if you don't have anything else about about Just that, a, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Mark. Do you have any concerns about clergy being, you know, targeted as, you know, if the government becomes annoyed? I mean, yeah. do you think will the district be supported? Do you think that they're they've the district is sticking their neck out. Um, they can, but they can only do so much. They don't have our relationship with the district is is purely advisory they they actually have no they're not they can they, although they worded it in the letter as though it was giving permission they actually they can't give permission they can't withhold permission it's not it's not in the nature of the relationship but it also means that in the end all the liability falls on the individual congregations so there is some risk and if if the thing if the matter does not get supported by the courts um, which I think it will. I think it will get supported by the courts. But if it doesn't, I I imagine that somebody somewhere will um, be persecuted for it. Some pastor, probably not mm -hmm. us, probably not me. 
Well, we'd bail you out. They don't, they don't care much about Fairhaven, Minnesota. <laughs> well, but we bail you out. I was just thinking about uh, that uh, business owner, was it uh, up north, you know, some little town or something like that, where yeah. um, he was going to open up his business. And so it, would this be something similar where yeah. um, yep. Ellington yeah. stepped in and said, can't meet in, or can't serve? In fact, there was an article in the Star Tribune this morning um, where Ellison was, is it Ellison? Ellison was uh, asked. Yeah. yeah. He was asked to respond to um, the uh, concern that churches had. And frankly, his, his reaction, his, his response to it was frightening to me. It was very, it was very vicious and um, accused churches of being merely political. Um, and uh, it, when I read it, it took my, kind of took my breath away. Um, so I wouldn't put anything beyond um, a government that operates on those sort of principles. I wouldn't put anything beyond them. And it's, I mean, this, this rapidly gets into the realm of um, nothing should surprise us anymore. You know, um, but the great thing is, uh, and this is this is the this is the freedom of a Christian, which is a beautiful and precious thing. Um, when you when you live your life uh, with a good conscience, knowing that you stand before God, clean, uh, pure, washed with the blood of Christ, and that you are uh, striving to conform your life to His will, when you do that. Um, it frees you from being concerned about trivial things, you know, <laughs> that everybody else would be concerned about, you know, I don't know. It's like Luther says, take they, what does he say? Goods, fame, child and wife, let though all these be gone, the, the victory still is won, right? The kingdom ours remaineth. And I mean, uh, it's a friend of mine, um, on a different subject recently said something to me that has stuck with me. He said, um, the more you discover just how corrupt the world is, uh, the more it makes you long for the eternal city, which is the only thing that matters. And uh, that's one of the, that's why I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of joyful right now about the situation because um, it shows, uh, it shows the unity of the kingdom of God. It shows that the kingdom of God is present among us. It was not a small thing for our district presidents to, uh, to take this action. That's a, it's a, it's, um, it took some gumption on their part and they needed to have a, a good conscience about it in order for them to do it. And, um, I, it just, it's, uh, it just shows that, um, there is a, there is a remnant, you know, in this world, uh, and, uh, and God is preserving his church. So Pastor, yeah. uh, I am to remind you to record. The Thank you. It is, uh, it is recording. Thank you for that. I suppose he probably texted me too. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, good. Good. Anything else you, uh, otherwise we should dig into the Bible a little bit. I, I just wanted to say, I, I, um, uh, pastor Nairud here a couple of years ago or whatever was kind of preaching about, uh, you know, that someday we're going to have to stand up for our uh, religious rights and it could be tomorrow or next day or I never thought it would be this soon that we would have to stand up for ourselves. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good observation. Um, and I, I think about how it, in the same vein, I never thought that uh, there would be a time when we couldn't come to church. You know, it's like, this is a very, 
monumental moment. And it is a moment of testing. Um, and uh, um, well, we'll learn about that today um, in James about when your faith is tested. Um, he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, um, because testing produces steadfastness. And that's, that's what we're after. So let's look at, uh, let's look at the book of James a little bit. Um, I have two things, two things on my list to talk about in James. Um, but first let me ask, do you have any questions, anything, anything that you want to pick up from last week or in your reading of the book, anything that we should talk about? Okay. Grandpa's waving his hand. Let's see. <laughs> you have to unmute yourself though. Okay. There you go. Uh, you know, we're, we're taught that uh, God wants everyone to be saved, right? Yes. Is there a promise implicit in that? Um, I guess I'm not sure what, um, do you have, do you have an idea that you're, that you're going after there? Well, if, if God wants everybody to save, be saved, then, you know, why isn't everybody saved? Well, you talked about this, um, I don't know if it was last week or the sermon, uh, this last Sunday, but, uh, you know, the unforgivable sin is the denial of the Holy Spirit, okay? But that's the only one, right? So, I don't know, I don't know where I'm headed with that. Well, no, I, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, so, so there is a promise, there is a promise in the fact that God wants everyone to be saved, and the promise is that his heart is a heart of mercy. So, he could, in his freedom, have an attitude towards sinful humanity, which is uh, all wrath and no mercy. Um, and he would be completely within his rights to do that. And this is, you know, it, it, there's, the, there's the difficult, impossible question of why some are saved and not others. That's an impossible question. The more impossible question, which kind of flips it on the head, is why God would bother being merciful in the first place. Why would he save anyone at all? And that question... <laughs> has no answer that's discernible to us. But that's the promise that's implicit in the fact that God wants everyone to be saved. The promise is that he is merciful, um, which for us who believe is everything. I mean, that's the promise we cling to. Um, for those who are outside of that promise, those who don't believe that promise, uh, his mercy is irrelevant. It doesn't, doesn't help them because they, they won't have it. But the fact of his mercy hasn't changed. And that is, um, again, that's everything. And that's the promise that we see manifested in Jesus dying on the cross. If you, you want to see what the heart of God looks like, you look at Jesus on the cross. And in Jesus on the cross, you see his will to save everybody because the blood of Jesus on the cross covers the sins of the whole world. There are no sins untouched, you know, by that blood. And... Um, and that's that's uh, that's an important thing, the the complete satisfaction that Christ made for the sins of the whole world, um, on account of the fact that God wills for the whole world to be saved. How's that? How's that? 
I'll accept it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Um, open up to, I got two passages I want to deal with, or two sections I want to deal with. Let's do chapter two first. Um, chapter two, verses 14 through 26. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, um, well, you've all got Bibles, I think, probably. I don't need to share my screen. Um, James chapter two, verses 14 through 26. And I think that this is actually pretty intuitive. It actually makes pretty good sense make pretty good common sense. But we have to think about it um, carefully because it seems at times that James is saying things that contradict with the most basic tenet of the, of the Lutheran faith, that you are saved by faith and not by works, that there's nothing you need to do nor could you do in order to save yourself. James says some things that, that seem to contradict that, well, we have, that's why we have to read it carefully. And I think that in the end, it, it, it resolves itself as simply a matter of, of common sense. So let me read this to you, and then um, we'll talk about it just a bit here. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that's, that's the offending verse right there. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the thing I want to draw your attention to here is especially this example of Abraham. And here's where I think that uh, we can make some good sense of what James is talking about. He's clearly concerned about people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And then when the kinds of things that you would expect a Christian to do, when the opportunity to do those things arises, they don't do them. In fact, they pay lip service to those things, but they don't actually execute. So they see somebody who's hungry or naked and they say, boy, it'd be great if you had food and clothing, and then they leave it at that. And James is saying, your, your religion is worthless, if that's what you think the faith is, because faith, by necessity, produces works. There are works that come out of faith just as a tree produces fruit. And this you can see with Abraham. So take the example of Abraham. Abraham believed God. He trusted God in a way that is uh, exemplary for us. He's held up as the example of man of faith. 
So really, when we want to know what faith looks like, uh, we, we can look at Abraham and see how that looks. And it has to do with this promise that he received from God. God promised that he would have a son and that in his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And even in his old age, when, according to human reason, it would have been impossible, God gave him a son. At the age of 100 years old, he had a son, Isaac. But then Isaac grew up and God said to Abraham, sacrifice your son. Offer him as a sacrifice. And every Abraham would have had every reason in his mind to think that was crazy. Not a good idea in the first place. Made immoral to, to kill his son and also destructive of God's promise. How could God possibly keep his promises if Isaac was dead? There, there, he's, he, he could have easily thought to himself, something is wrong. I cannot follow God's command. But... Abraham, the man of faith, believed God, and that, that allowed him to actually believe two apparently contradictory things. One, that God would bless all the nations of the world through his son Isaac, and the second, that God wanted him to sacrifice his son and would keep his promise even if his son was dead. That God, in fact, could raise Isaac from the dead uh, if that was what was needed in order to keep the promise. And so, Abraham believed God, but it didn't remain in the realm of something happening in his heart or in his mind. He didn't just say, okay, I believe you, God. But out of that faith flowed action. He wasn't just a hearer of the word, but a doer as well. He uh, knew that believing in God, trusting in God, meant that he would obey what God had uh, commanded him. And so he did it. He, he carried out the command that God had given him. And that fruit of his faith showed his faith. It proved his faith. And so uh, James is saying, look, here's the relationship between works and faith. Works flow out of faith like fruit from a tree. So if there are no works, if there is no tree, then you have every reason to doubt the health of that tree. You know? If there are no works, then you have every reason to doubt that that faith is not present. Let me pause there for a second and see uh, if you have any questions. If that makes sense to you. Pastor, when we taught that lesson at Sunday school, the kids were just floored that the dad is going to hurt their son. Yeah. How can that happen? And then, you know, as it went on, then, you know, it all made sense to the kids. But the kids were floored. Yeah. And that's, that, that's a totally normal reaction, isn't it? I mean, right. that's our reaction. Too. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I mean, it only, it gives you just sort of a shadow of the kind of experience Abraham must have had, right? Right. It was not, I, 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 like, it's hard to imagine his emotions, his turmoil, you know, um, right. a terrible thing. And yet he had this, uh, again, this has to do with the freedom of a Christian um, and having a good conscience because he believed God and was obedient to God, he could act and be, and, and be joyful even if, even if it meant losing his son, you know, um, and even if it meant he himself was the one who took his son's life because he knew that God was on his side and that God has a heart of mercy. So um, this is, I mean, it's a picture of our lives, really. Um, what we're called to do day by day is to not just pay lip service to the faith that we profess, but actually to do many, many things that seem crazy, outlandish, you know, confessing your faith, speaking the truth, um, 
giving away your stuff, you know, <laughs> helping people, helping people who cannot repay you. Um, uh, that is, that makes no sense at all. Like to, to help somebody who can't pay you back, you know, to, um, to give away your last penny as that poor widow did in the temple, you know, outrageous, doesn't make any sense. And yet that's the life that we're called to live as Christians. Hey, Chrissy, my dad always told me that uh, you brought me into this world. He could certainly take me back out. <laughs> well, I tell Myron the same exact thing every day. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's always taller than me. <laughs> well, good. So I just wanted I wanted to touch on that because it's a, it's a crucial verse. But I think that... Um, I think that it, it, it uh, when you see the whole picture, it makes a lot of sense. Now, here's the here's the catch, because it's possible for a person then to look at their life and say, "Okay, well, I say that I believe in God, but I also know that I'm not very good at producing works, right? I don't like, I don't, I'm just not just overflowing with love for people, and I'm not giving away all my property and possessions, and I'm impatient and unkind, and I, uh, you know." I gossip and I do all these things, right? So where are my works? How can I be sure that I have faith? Which is a, a legitimate question to ask. Um, and James actually deals with that question a little bit. He picks up that question um, or answers how you're supposed to handle this in chapter four. So let's uh, just turn to chapter four. And this is the second thing I want to deal with. Um, uh, but first, I'm going to jump around just a little bit. So this is what he says um, in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Um, the point is that to be in a position where you say, yeah, my works do not match my faith and I wish it, were, I wish it weren't like that. To be in that position, to have that frame of mind is in fact exactly where God wants you. Because in that frame of mind, your only hope is to call on God for mercy. You don't have any hope in yourself. Because it is a reality that in this life, as long as you are, your heart is beating, you are in the flesh, and so you struggle against the flesh, and you do not produce the works that are befitting of the new life that you have in Christ. And so we ought to be wretched and mourn and weep that we are not yet living in the kingdom of God fully realized, right? We are resisting the devil, we're struggling against him, and our hope is not that we somehow produce enough fruit in order to get ourselves into heaven, our hope is in that God is merciful and has promised to forgive our sins on account of Jesus Christ. Um, and that is, that is what not only cleanses your heart, but that is also the source of works uh, going forward. That is the source of strength of faith, is that realization that, that your only hope is that God is a merciful God. Okay. Any, any questions? You know, Pastor, you were saying about how I say almost on a daily basis, I can't stand people anymore. <laughs> and both of my jobs, I work with people. And people, 
I'll say it to like coworkers or something. I'm like, oh, I can't stand people anymore. They're like, well, why do you do what you do? I don't know. And <laughs> then I, they'll be like, but you don't show it. You don't act like that when you're in somebody's room helping them or, you know, even with dealing with kids at school. They're like, you don't act like it. Oh, I do a lot of repentance, I say. <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> I said, I'm good at faking it, I said. <laughs> a lot well, of repentance. Well, there you go. I mean, everybody has everybody has their besetting sin, you know? Like, when you look at the Ten Commandments, there are some that are more and less difficult for each of us. And um, I think that... You get you kind of point out something really important there, Chrissy, is that like you know that about yourself, right? <laughs> you know, you know it, which is um, what's that? That's that's the first step, right? Knowing, right. knowing it, you know. <laughs> um, and but then there's the real question of like, what do you do with that knowledge when you recognize that you're not who you should be, right? Because I mean, let's face it, people are awful, generally speaking. Yes. But we should love them we should love them and not and not be sick of them. Um, so what do you do with that knowledge that you're not who you should be? Do you throw up your hands and say, oh, whatever, it is what it is. Do you uh, lament it? Do you say, I, you know, I, I, this is not right. And there's something wrong with me and the world that I live in on account of this, you know, like this, do you, do you get that sense? Do you feel as though you're a stranger <laughs> in this world, in this situation? And do you long for that day when, um, you don't have that experience when you, uh, I mean, just think about what freedom that is to, um, if you weren't burdened by your own sinful reaction to people, you know, not only are they going to be perfect, but you're going to be perfect. And that is going to be wonderful because then you won't have the burden of having been impatient or having to hold back your impatience or hide it or whatever. You won't have that in your heart. And that's, that is the joy of heaven is that like dude, you're free of it. You're free of it. You know, it'll be a beautiful thing. So. Do you think the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Ma, you had your hand up first. Actually she did. But... Oh, okay. <laughs> do you think, do you think the 10 commandments are ordered in the order of more of difficulty? Uh, for, to some degree, absolutely. Or maybe priority. How about that? Priority. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, some are more and less difficult for others. The first commandment is most difficult for everybody. Um, everybody uh, in their heart of hearts loves something more than God. And rooting that out is the chief thing that we're, we're after in this life. But at various stages of life, people struggle with different things. Luther once said when you're, a, he said there's three stages to life. When you're a young man, you struggle against your against your 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 sinful flesh, your your um, your lust and your fleshly desires. That's what you struggle against when you're a young man. When you're middle aged, it's your possessions. So you know you go from the sixth commandment being the most difficult to seven, nine, and ten being most difficult. And then in your old age, you tend to struggle most with despair, with you know wanting to throw up your hands at the world and say nothing's ever changed. You know. I'm, when is, when is this going to get better? And that, that gets more towards the first table of the commandments. You know, when, when is God going to keep his promises? Um, so I think at different stages of life and in different circumstances, uh, we experience different struggles with those commandments. Okay, Ma, your turn. I just, I just wondered if 
part of the purpose for James? Do you think it's that we're supposed to bring it full circle back to the um, return of Christ, where we give an accounting for our work and we need to draw on what Christ did for us, that since we can't fulfill all these things James wants us to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so James, what James does not want, most of all, is for you to think that you are an exceptional Christian because you claim to be a Christian, but you never do anything. That, that kind of hypocrisy, that kind of gross, crass hypocrisy is what he's, what he's against. Now, we're all hypocrites to some degree, but Christians struggle against hypocrisy, right? The kind of people that James is concerned about is people who are content in their hypocrisy. Yeah. And we have a lesson to learn from them because we as Christians who struggle against our hypocrisy learn from day to day just how deep that hypocrisy runs, you know, how how our faith is not manifested in works. But the difference is that we're not content with it. We don't I don't want to be like that. You know, I, I um, I've been given my my I, I pray that my mind and my heart are conformed to the will of God and not to the passions of my flesh. You know, that's, that's your prayer. That's different, a different thing. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about chapter four here, but the beginning of the chapter, I had a question come in about, um, about one verse in, or a couple of verses in particular here, verse four, uh, verse four. Um, but let me let me let's get a running start. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Chapter four, verse uh, verses one through five. So just before what we read a moment ago, this is what he says: What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And it's that last part that the question, uh, that raised the question, um, what does it mean to be an enemy of the world? Uh, especially in view of the fact that we're supposed to uh, love and care for and be considerate of, ev of everyone, um, isn't thinking of the world as our enemy, doesn't that sort of set us in, the, in a pretty negative frame of mind about, about people, about everyone, all these awful people, all these people that <laughs> we get sick of? You know, like, uh, is it really good for us to think of them as our enemies? So let me, let me just throw that question out there and let me see what kind of reactions you have to that. Does that strike you that way or do you have um any response marion it looks like you're about to say something hang on there you go go ahead marion okay i don't think it's um for me anyway directed to uh people but more to the actions that the world so you're kind of thinking like a, a sort of a um Love the love the sinner, hate the sin, kind of a kind yeah. of a thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Although sometimes when they go on and on saying uh, bad things, it does get hard to see that. Yeah. I guess I'm talking about politics. <laughs> I couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's it's an interesting thing because the because um, 
that notion of loving the sinner and hating the sin is is a powerful notion because of course it helps to remind us that everyone every person is a child of is a creature of god right and every person is someone for whom christ died and so we this is what keeps christians from ever cursing anyone you don't you don't curse people you don't damn them to hell because god hasn't you know he died for them um and so you don't you don't curse them you don't wish evil on people and yet there is um there is a sense in which that kind of uh love the sinner hate the sin can go a little bit too far when we sort of mistake uh when we misunderstand what love is um the bible is full of um uh, prayer for vindication against the wicked for justice against the wicked and in fact this was one of the one of the jobs that the people of Israel were supposed to carry out when they went into the promised land was to bring judgment on the wicked people in the land of Canaan by utterly destroying them, which does not seem like a very loving thing to do. Um, it seems like they were neither loving the sinner nor, nor the sin. Um, but uh, there is a point at which wickedness um, has reached its end and at which um, we, don't, we don't help anybody by saying, um, you know, I, well, I, I, you know, I love the sinner, even though I hate the sin. Um, there is a, there is a point at which it's, it's fair to say that a person is in fact wicked because of the things that they do. And that's hard though. I mean, that, that, and this is, this is part of the point of what's difficult here with James is that, um, that immediately puts us at odds with a person, uh, just as we are at odds with the world. I mean, um, to love somebody is to desire what's good for them. And what's good for a person is that they stop being wicked, you know, and 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 uh, that their that their heart be freed from wickedness. So, um, okay. Anybody else? Any anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, Marlene. Marlene. It's almost kind of like the situation we're in right now, where we we see that the, the government doesn't really want, or we don't feel that they want us to worship church or worship Christ that it's not important and so now if we're friends of the world we don't see anything wrong with it so as a Christian I think that's why so many people feel that it's been too long that it's almost um it, it's becoming more of a disgrace to us Christians not being able to worship the way we want I'm not sure if I'm putting it in the right words but Kind of like when I when I read here, it says, "Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God?" So if we want to constantly stick with what they're telling us not to do, we're losing our identity actually of of um, trying to show them that no, as a Christian, we have a right to worship. I think that's I think that's a good example. Um, and in you hit on something very good about go, sort of going along. And I think that this is one of the things that um, James is really after here. Because at times, our lives do line up with the way the world operates, right? I mean, you get up in the morning, and you go to work, and you pay your bills, and you pay your mortgage, and you go to sleep at night, and that's what everybody else in the world does, right? So in that sense, you are, you know, you're just a part of the world. But the Christian... Uh, when they when they happen to be going along with the world, they are never being swept along with the world. They just they, they, their paths just happen to intersect for a moment. Um, but the Christian is going 
his own way. He's going God's way. And so the, uh, here's a helpful image, I think, to, to, to picture it. It's, uh, you know what, Dad, you taught me a lesson long, long ago when we would go on bike rides, that when you, when you um, cross a railroad tracks on your bike, you have to make sure you cross the railroad tracks with your tires perpendicular to the tracks, because otherwise, if you just add a little bit of an angle, your tire's gonna get sucked into that railroad track when, and you're gonna be going along down the railroad track. Or picture like a, a rut, a well-worn rut in a road. You know, um, if, you, if you get your car going in that rut, it's the easiest thing in the world. You know, you could take your hands off the steering wheel because the rut is just going to carry you along. Right. Um, and this is what this is the way it, it works for Christians. Occasionally we the car goes down into the rut, but it always comes up, up on out on the other side, you know. Um, and that's the difference between uh, being a friend of the world and a being a friend of God, because picture what that rut is doing. That rut is taking you in a certain direction, not where you want to go. Our destination's over here, the eternal city. And in order to get there, we have to cross that rut, but we do not want to be swept along. We don't want to fall into that rut and be carried away with it. Um, and so we obey the government as long as the government is doing it, you know, is, is um, acting within the authority that God has given it and is not uh, telling us to do something that God has forbidden. Um, and that's because we're going this way, you know? It might, it makes sense that from time, and God, in fact, that's why God gave the government was to protect us and to take care of us. Um, and so uh, the key is that we recognize that this is our destination, as our eyes are on that goal. Our friend is God. The world is um, uh, at odds with God, and that means we should, we always have to be circumspect. We always have to pay attention. And this is difficult. This is hard work as a Christian because, you know, right now it's clear, it's, it's a very clear situation where we have to be very thoughtful and conscientious and weigh things very carefully. We have all the, I mean, all of these things to weigh. We have to, we have to weigh the, the risk um, and the health of our neighbors and we have to weigh, weigh our obligation to obey the government in, as, as much as we can. We have to weigh the confession that we give to the world. There's all these things that are, uh, that make it, so that we have to be very thoughtful and conscientious right in this moment. But that, that shouldn't detract from the fact that every day a Christian lives is a day in which you have to engage in that very same struggle of not just going with the world, but being a friend of God and keeping your eyes on the eternal city. Um, that's in fact, you know, times like these when, when the church makes a confession and we as Christians stand for, uh, our our uh, allegiance to God's word, um, it's almost easy to be a Christian in a time like this because it's it's very clear the distinction between the church and the world, between God and the world. It's times when the when the lines are much more blurry, when it's much more subtle that we're in that we're always in, that we're more in greater danger of being friends of the world and enemies of God. Uh, so so basically, you know, the the, the point is. This is a lifelong battle for a Christian um, to to be circumspect, not to not to befriend the world, but to but to uh, devote yourself to God. I love those birds singing in the background. I think those are coming from your your camera there, Dorothy and Doug. Oh, <laughs> I thought I was muted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you. <laughs> Okay. Any any uh, any questions or comments you got? I'm just. Is it is it different if you're not a friend of the world? Is that do you is that where does tolerance come in to play there? Like if you're 
tolerant or we call it non-judgmental versus how does that factor in if because like with um allowing abortions as an essential service yeah during this we have to be non-judgmental and tolerant but is that becoming being part of the world if we're doing that so again I, one of the one of the key points i would make here is that um this is an ongoing struggle for christians it's something you have to take up all the time again afresh you have to repent of <laughs> you know you have to you have to learn from learn from the past and, and go forward so the notion of tolerance is a good example um I, somebody somebody i was reading a book about i can't remember what the book was about but it, it gave a great explanation of how we should understand tolerance because the, the reality is that um tolerance is a virtue and the fact is that we all tolerate some things to some degree um now in our world tolerance doesn't mean tolerance it means permissiveness right um the uh the hands off don't judge is not that's not tolerance the virtue of tolerance that's the vice of permissiveness um and so that's an important thing um but again so here's the thing about virtues every virtue is um is a middle way it's a medium it's it's a it's a it's a center spot between two extremes so you can picture the two extremes of, of tolerance. On the one end, there's um, where you don't tolerate anything, right? You don't, like, um, in every conversation, when anybody makes any kind of a mistake, you immediately correct them, right? That's having no tolerance whatsoever. And then there's the op opposite end of that spectrum, which is permissiveness, where you tolerate everything and you don't ever stand for the truth. You don't ever say, this is right and that's wrong. Um, and so you see that the middle way is somewhere in between. The virtue of tolerance is somewhere in between. And then again, that just highlights the fact that um, you can't rest on your laurels. You can't sit back as a Christian. You, you don't get to just sit back on some set of principles and say, look, I've got everything figured out. You actually have to daily re-engage, daily take up um, starting with, uh, you know, God's word and, and what he says is good. And um and reevaluate. I mean, it's really, it's an ongoing, <laughs> it's an ongoing uh, difficult life that, that Christians have. Um, and the reason is because of the number of our enemies and the, um, and the diversity of their attacks. So think about what Luther says. It's the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. So the devil um, attacks us in our consciences, tries to make us feel guilty for sins that we are not uh, to be condemned for because Christ died for them. The world tells us that we are fools, right? The world tells us that we um, should just go along, as Peter says, with their flood of debauchery, and they malign us, and they insult us for the name of Jesus. Our own flesh within loves all of the things that we shouldn't love. And so you see how, you know, day by day, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle on every front, which is exactly why God's word is so precious to us because of the promise that's attached to God's word is the weaponry that you need to fight a battle against those things. Um, I, I return all the time to Ephesians chapter six, take, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, right? You have, it is hard to be a Christian. It's hard. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he, he says, look, um, it's a battlefield day in and day out, right? This is, this is the war to the end of your life. Um, but you are not left weaponless, unarmed in the middle of that field. And, and it really, I mean, uh, uh, to endure in that struggle, you, you need to take up that, that weaponry. But there it is. It's all right there. It's everything you need. Okay. What else? Anything else? So I looked up the definition of tolerance. Yeah. And it says the ability or willingness to tolerate something in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. So we're willing to tolerate it because that's what the definition is. And it's opinion. So when we say we tolerate a lot, it's our opinion. You know what I mean? So opinions are things that uh, they're they're things about which reasonable people can disagree, right? So right. that's that's what that's the definition of an opinion, um, right. and that in fact is part of the virtue of tolerance. So like if you say, Chris, if you said to me, um, you know, uh, blue carpeting is greater than green carpeting, and I don't like break off our friendship because of that, that's tolerance, right? You know, that's like that's totally, <laughs> I and that's right. and that's um, uh, the same thing with behaviors. It's like um, if, uh, if I love eating onions and, uh, and Jessica thinks that it's the grossest thing in the world, but she doesn't, you know, storm out of the room every time I eat onions, she's tolerating my right. eating onions, right? Right. Um, so we should tolerate people that don't believe the same as we do, right? So, th so this we is the- tolerate the government, right? This is the question. So there are, there are limits to our tolerance. Right, because the, because tolerance is, is sort of a middle way, right? So yeah. you can think of some examples. Um, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. So we tolerate the authority of the government so long as it does not conflict with God's authority. Um, uh, we tolerate uh, the corrupt behavior of the world so long as it's not, um, well, the, here, here, you, here you run into trouble, right? So you, where you draw that line of the, the corrupt behavior of the world um, is a big question. And in fact, it's a question that really falls in the realm of government, okay? So the government has to decide what they're going to prosecute and what they're not going to prosecute. Um, an ideal government, of course, would, um, would say that anything that breaks God's law is criminal, right? That's what the government should say. Um, they shouldn't tolerate wicked behavior. Um, 
but then of course this enters into the realm of our personal relationships right like so what do we tolerate in the lives of people around us there's no cut and dried answer there you know because it's it's finding the middle way um and that's hard that uh, to be honest this kind of stuff like the question of um living in a world that is at enmity with god and living among people who are um, enemies of God, how you do that, that's the hard stuff of being a Christian. That really is where the rubber meets the road. Um, and it is where we we need wisdom and pray for wisdom because um, it's hard work. So as your mom said, tolerating or intolerance, like with the the abortion clinic staying open i can't tolerate that <laughs> that <laughs> that part I, I can't to me that is um murder it's taking a life that god has planned and blessed and i don't think anybody that is a christian should tolerate that that's just my opinion well, so, okay, so this is great because you, you just used the word opinion too. <laughs> um, so in fact, yeah, so, um, so, it, so what you stated was a fact. Um, it is not, um, it, is, it is intolerable. Abortion is intolerable. But what does it mean for you as a Christian to not be able to tolerate it? Well, it's not actually something that's under your jurisdiction. So, it is a scandal to Christians, and you should be scandalized by it. But the bigger question is whether or not the government tolerates it, whether it because it's within their jurisdiction. And we should be also offended at a government that tolerates it. But in fact, you and I, we're, we're neither tolerating it or not tolerating it because it's not within our jurisdiction. We can't, we have no, we have no authority to regulate that. But if we elect, if we elect our government, we should be able to go to our legislators and let them know that we will not tolerate it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so so what? This is good. So what we won't tolerate? What I think what you I think what you're getting at. This is great. Is that what you're not going to tolerate is legislators who say that they're going to support life and then don't. Uh, act in that way. And that right. is something that you can, that you actually have jurisdiction over because you're a voter, right? So you can say, I'm not going to vote for you if you don't put your money where your mouth is, or you are a, you, you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, right? And that is, so, so the, uh, parsing that out carefully is, is, is very clear. So uh, it is very helpful. So um, we have these realms of jurisdiction that are very, very important. It's just like this matter with the church um, and, uh, and disobeying the question of disobeying the government right now um it's not it, it's not uh up to us as one one church that uh, um ostensibly walks together with all kinds of other churches in our synod it's not up to us to unilaterally say we don't tolerate what the government is doing but it is something that is within the realm of us as a body to act upon and so there the word tolerance or what we can and cannot tolerate actually get, carries some weight. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, like if I said, if I stood up and said, I can't tolerate this any longer, I'm, I'm throwing the doors wide open or whatever, um, I would be acting as a renegade. And it would, and, and it's not, 
You know, just in the same way that if you said, I can't tolerate that abortion clinic and you, you loaded up your AK-47 and you drove down there, um, you would not be acting, you'd be acting as a renegade and it wouldn't be, it would be ungodly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So your, your, your sensibility about it is, is spot on. And that kind of indignation we should feel in this world that doesn't feel any indignation about matters like abortion or any other really um, of the, uh, of the terrible things that go on in our world. Um, the, the real live question for Christians, and I think this is what um, one of the things that you're, you're engaging right now is what do you do about it? What can you do about it? And um, whatever you can do, you should, <laughs> you know? I just feel not enough people speak up against it. Everybody's too afraid that they're going to offend someone or they're going to say it's wrong. And I just think more Christians need to stand up and say, we've had enough. I mean, that's where it comes together, where we've got to show where we stand. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're right. I think that we all have opportunities in our lives to speak more clearly than we do. Mm-hmm. I think that that is, that's. And, and my, I know we, we always get caught up in the politics behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and I always worry about my politics of, you know, you don't want to hear what my politics are, nor do I want to hear somebody else, what somebody else's politics are. But there is a, such a thing as right and wrong. And I, I think we get too bent up over, over, you know, I see people, well, I don't like Governor Walls because he's a Democrat. Well, no, I don't like what he's doing. I think he's been good up till now. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's he's making mistakes. But on the other hand, um, you know, standing up for what's right and wrong. I think that's the problem with our country is it's always a political ploy, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal. And instead of saying, you're right and I'm wrong, let's stand together and make it right. That, that's where we're missing as a country and and that's and then pointing at you know making a political thing as is, is a real it's a slippery slope and, and and all of a sudden and that's what's happening to our country it's a slippery slope everybody oh i'm voting republican that's it no more you know and not listening to common sense and believe me i my my the republican party is not conservative enough for me <laughs> so but 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 we always try and make it political and that that that's where I worry about you know we need to stand up for what's right and wrong right yeah 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 and I think that that that's where um you're definitely on to something Marlene that um again we if you if you just think about um kind of the the environment we live in really frowns on judgmentalism right or the the appearance of judgmentalism and so when it comes to matters of clear right and wrong, true and falsehood, we end up framing things often as this is my opinion, or we're kind of forced into that position of saying, well, this is just my opinion, when in fact, it's something that God says. If something that God says is right or wrong, I mean, nobody nobody says, uh, well, murder's, murder's wrong, and that's just my opinion. You know, like nobody says that, because <laughs> it's clear as day. And there are lots of things that should be clear as day. Um, and And we lose a grip on that um because we lack courage i mean i think it is it is uh, uh we're afraid of i think i think you're exactly right we're afraid of the consequences we're afraid of the afraid of the world um 
And because we don't have good consciences about things too. I mean, again, this goes back to freedom. When, you're, when you um, are convicted of what's right and wrong, um, and you stand before God with a clean conscience because of Jesus' blood, um, that, that lends a clarity to what you can say uh, without fear. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to be afraid. As I say, that kind of blends in with, I was thinking of, uh, you know, like the whole gay lesbian thing. I was thinking of uh, like the, the female that may have had an abortion. Uh, you don't want to make her feel ostracized. So it's like you need to accept um, her, you know, you don't want to offend her. So same thing with like the gay lesbian thing, same thing. And because everybody knows somebody that probably has done something like that. And, um, and so, yeah, we just are more tolerant and uh, rather than, yeah, and we don't want to be judgmental quote unquote. And, um, yeah, it is, it is difficult. I mean, there, cause there's, so there's so many issues in life, um, about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, again, this is the stuff. This is where the rubber meets the road as Christians. And I think that, um, well, Peter says something about um, judgment. Judgment must begin with the household of God, right? So um, you're, you're exactly right to say, look, um, we should take this up seriously and we should start taking it seriously within the circles that are our jurisdiction. So it starts, I mean, honestly, it starts with uh, within family and within friend, among friends, and within churches. I mean, um, it's never, it, you know, we can, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and say, look, the world is running amok. What am I going to do about it? Um, when in fact, you, our responsibility is to the people around us and mm -hmm. to speak clearly to them and to um, stand up for, for what's right and speak the truth um, it, with, within our reach to our, to our neighbors, you know? And that's often, that's often where it's hardest, right? It's easier to imagine uh, talking to a stranger often than it is talking to <laughs> somebody who's close to you. And like what she was saying with your gay, lesbian, we all know someone. I think the biggest thing, and maybe I don't do it right, but if I know someone, it's not that I don't care about them. It's not that I would degrade them because I can't be the judge. God only knows what's in their heart and he's the one who will judge them on judgment day. And, but it's still, for me, I struggle within that lifestyle. Or I struggle with the person who probably, you know, had an abortion, even though it's probably at that point in time felt it was her only way out. Um, so I pray for them. And it's just, I don't know how to, does that, is that right or is that wrong? That's a tough question to answer because it depends, you know, it does depend on situation to situation. And the, the test, the sure test is um, what is the attitude of your heart? Are you interested in what's good for this person or are you concerned about what's good for you? You know, um, and one thing that um, has, has sort of shaped the way that I think about these matters is to, to really understand to reckon with the danger that people are often in unwittingly, you know? Mm -hmm. So somebody who, um, who is uh, content, asleep in their sin, somebody who's asleep in their sin is in grave danger. Um, and just as you, if you saw your kid wandering out into traffic, you'd, you know, you would, you have the sense of urgency <laughs> to get out there and stop them. Mm -hmm. um, 
for the people in our lives, uh, that sense of urgency is often what's missing, you know, because for one thing, we feel like life is just going to go on as it has before. And for another thing, we have a hard time um, really believing that God is going to judge the living and the dead, which, which he is, you know, and, um, uh, and I heard, I heard one pastor say, um, and it's, this is a startling thing to hear, but he said, you know, look, are you, are you more interested in like keeping the peace now with, you know, with this or that person in your life? Are you more interested in keeping the peace with them than you are in seeing them in heaven? Which is more, which is more important to you? You know, and like that, when you, when it comes down to that, that's a really, that's a, wow, that's a stark, that's a stark contrast. Um, and it, you know, it's reason to take pause and, and uh, think things through carefully. Mm-hmm. Why, why can't they, um, I mean, there is a, there is a choice for these mothers or whatever, have an abortion. There, there is a choice where you can have the baby and give it up for adoption. That would be much better to do than anything else, but you don't even hear that much happening nowadays. I mean, there isn't that many kids up for adoption anymore. Yeah. And yeah, there. Go ahead, Neil. That's kind of where I think uh, they do have a choice. You know, they can go that route too. And, um, they always say it's hard. it's up to the mother. It's up to the mother. Well, it is is to a certain point where she could have a an abortion or she can have a, you know give it up for adoption. But you don't have to have the baby aborted. You know you could give it up for adoption. There is that choice. You know so. This is where um, the church and families really have an opportunity to step up and be proactive because. Although from, you know, from, from our perspective, it seems like an easy, obvious solution. Um, it is often from the perspective of a mother, not, not a possibility by any stretch of the imagination because other factors weigh very heavily. Shame, shame is one big factor that prevents, um, that, that, that makes it unimaginable for many mothers to mm-hmm. give birth to their children. Um, and then you think about like, why, wh- where, why does that, why is that shame there? Well, Often it's on account of the fact that relationships that are founded in love and mercy are not present in that person's life. They don't, they don't know what it's like to have somebody who will love them um, unconditionally. And so they can't imagine that, they, that there are things, you know, that they think of it as something that, for, that is unforgivable, something which they cannot recover from. Um, but this is where the church shines as a brilliant light, a beacon on a hill, because Look, I mean, this is what the church is. It's a group of people who have, uh, who, who are full of, w- would be full of shame if everything they had done were laid bare before them. Um, but they know that God's mercy extends to them and through them into the people around them. Um, so, you know, it is, a, like, like, like you said, Neil, there is a choice. But um, on, the, uh, on the one hand, uh, it, that, the, the reality, the existence of that choice increases the burden for for family and for churches to uh, make that choice visible and clear and um, uh, uh, and uh, attractive. Right. No, I just I just feel that that by having it, it could put shame in her. But what's worse than than creating a, a sin that's that is worse than that even? You know, I mean, 
um, but yeah, they could nowadays they can um, they can have it and nobody even knows about it. And and I mean they they'll know that she that was pregnant, but they'll never know once they have it. The new parents come and take it right away or whatever, and that that to me is is a better choice to to go. But I know everybody's you know thinking different on on those things now. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the um, there are some Lutheran organizations that really promote adoption, advertise it, and push it hard. And um, that's a really that's a really valuable work that they do to make that make that available and easy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we've gone a little bit past the time I meant to go past here, so uh, probably should <laughs> should wrap this up. Anybody else have anything else? Any pressing matters? Okay. Let Let's conclude with the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll uh, see you all in the coming days. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.